So here's a thought. If every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, does that mean that every system must be changed from top to bottom, inside out, every day, before anything, and I mean anything, changes at all? Okay, that sounds kind of absurd, but I'm posing these questions because daily problems and time-consuming defects come with the territory of improving healthcare, often despite there being strong safety cultures and best practices in play. And these things that cause collective groans and a lot of eye-rolling can chip away at safe care and certainly joy in work. So what if a lot of these defects could be resolved more quickly and efficiently by an empowered frontline staff with the tools and proverbial green light to take action? How would that work? Well, we're going to find out on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. One of the reasons I'm excited about our topic today is that it reflects an honesty about real people in real jobs in healthcare and what often gets in the way of even the best improvement cultures and also feeling good about taking care of patients. Today's show is, in a sense, in the weeds, in often messy, inefficient barriers that everyone grows much too used to or figures out their own ways to work around. And there is a different way forward, as we're about to find out from our guests. So to introductions in just a moment, but here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today on WIHI. John? All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few things to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of our screen is the chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to an audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and send the slides your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. If you like to tweet, thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. That way we get others in on the conversation. Okay, some brief guest introductions. Longer bios are on the slides and on our website. Joining us all by phone today, we're going to start with Roger Resar. He's a senior fellow and part-time faculty for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and is assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinical Medical School. Roger has contributed to the development and national spread of key safety and improvement strategies, such as medication reconciliation and the use of trigger tool methodology, and that isn't even the half of it. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. Wonderful. Stephen Spear, uh, here in after Steve, I guess is okay, is senior lecturer at MIT, senior fellow at IHI, and principal of the High Velocity Edge, his own company. His research focuses on high-speed learning loops that are the engines for improvement and innovation. Welcome, Steve. Hi. All right. We've also got Alexia Green with us. Uh, all the way uh, from Texas, Alexi Green is Professor of Nursing and Dean Emerita at Texas Tech University Health Science Center. That's where she now serves as a faculty in the Doctorate of Nursing Practice Program, where she's teaching quality improvement, systems leadership, and population health. Welcome, Alexia. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. And last but never least, Andrea Capsinal is a vice president at IHI, is on the research and development team, and leads a number of major IHI initiatives. The current focus of her work includes leadership for improvement and building effective networks to foster innovation and regional health improvement. Welcome, Andrea. 
Thank you, Madge. All right. Well, we're going to go right to Andrea right now, and you're going to sort of help set up why we're here, why we're having this discussion, which is help us understand how IHI and our guests today got focused and what can sometimes seem like the nitty-gritty of working in healthcare improvement today. And I'm wondering, was it the safety lens or working on reliability that started to really shed light on issues that often get in the way? Thanks, Andrea. Well, certainly those two uh, efforts, so important, safety and reliability, got us moving in that direction. Um, but there are other issues as well. We've all learned that the journey from uh, new policy to actual practice is long and that outcomes only really get better when the people at the point of service can actually change what they do. And that's the most important. Um, we also heard something profound from senior leaders that were working with IHI and they were saying we just can't change fast enough. Um, and it made us look for bottlenecks. When you think about not fast enough, you think about well, what are the barriers. Um, we actually found um, by talking to people that there were barriers that were really there. So here's some questions that you all can ask yourselves. For example, who will drive out the everyday defects at the point of service? Who's actually going to do that? Is it the quality department? When an important change comes into the organization, will it happen reliably at the front line? Um, and, in fact, a third, maybe even more troubling one is, if every initiative coming from the quality department were acted on, what percent of our urgent needs for quality and safety would be in hand at that point? And when we looked at those questions, um, we said, you know, so far the people we talked to uh, don't have good answers for those, and we didn't like it either. So IHI launched a, a series of R&D projects um, to, uh, to help understand what barriers needed to be overcome. Luckily, we were co-sponsored by the NAHQ, the National Association for Healthcare Quality, and they were our partners and co-sponsors for this work and helped us a great deal. What we found in those projects is that there are really three strands of practice that made us think that there was a new way, and you're going to hear a bit about them now. The first, of course, is lean management, um, both in and out of healthcare, gives us some very good ideas about where to go. Situational awareness, understanding the risks and predicting where problems are going to be and being aware of them is a second. And then, of course, the see, solve, share, lead approach that Steve Spear is going to talk about brought all these pieces together, and so this is how we're thinking about how all the strands reach. And, of course, both Roger and Steve, along with Kathy Luther from IHI and Neil Romanoff and his team from Cedars-Sinai, helped pull it all together. All right. Thanks so much, Andrea, and we will hear from you some more as we go along. Um, but I really want to thank Andrea for bringing a lot of this stuff um, to our attention. And um, because it turns out we've sort of surfaced of a fair amount of work and findings and learning that we think is so actionable uh, that we're thrilled that we've had such a good response uh, to, to the program today in terms of registration. All right. Thanks, Andrea. On now to Steve Spear. So let me ask you this, as a longtime expert on lean and other things and uh, ways that encourage the most agile forms of proactive problem solving and decision making on the front lines, I'm wondering, um, has something still been missing in healthcare? Meaning we talk a lot about the front lines being empowered, but in fact, they're not terribly so. Thanks, Steve. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, here, here's, uh, I think, what's the painful irony about healthcare. <clears throat> is that the um, basic assumptions um, that we make about what's an indication of health for a patient, and what we think um, is an indication of uh, well-practiced clinical care, is not carried two, three, four steps away from the bedside to the whole system. Now, let me just explain very quickly what I mean. If we think about what's characteristic of health, is that uh, the human being has an ability to respond to um, stresses placed on them, infectious agents, exertion, whatever else it happens to be, but respond to stresses in a self-adjusting, self-adapting, self-correcting way. And in fact, um, one of the reasons we, we acquire illness is that we lose the ability to do this dynamic self-correction. All right, so let's just think about that. We have these very complex systems which um, when, when they're operating well, they, they, they self-correct. And then 
taking you know a half a step back from the patient to the patient bedside, when we start thinking about how we um, deal with um, patients who are ill, there's also this self-correcting dynamic which occurs, right? Which is we, we go and examine a patient, uh, try and understand um, how their body is performing and what problems it's presenting. We do a diagnosis to understand the cause of those things, develop a treatment plan to address the causes, um, make some prediction and prognosis in terms of what the effect of the treatment will be. But then in, in the course of uh, applying the treatment, we're constantly following up to see where we're right, where we're wrong, and if we're wrong, it forces us back through this loop of, of assessment, diagnosis, uh, treatment planning, and, and prediction. Right? So again, um, a very dynamic, self-correcting process. Take one step further, and, and you get into how people start thinking about managing not the complex system of the patient or the complex system of care, but the complex um, systems through which the work of many people is brought to common purpose of providing care, and, and we lose the dynamic self-corrective piece of it. And so in terms of healthcare, what strikes me is um, the, the painful gap is that if healthcare providers simply took the same disciplines about dynamic problem solving that they apply when they're working at their best to patients and apply exactly the same thinking about dynamic problem solving to um, the systems they inhabit and the systems for which they're responsible, I think things would be much better than they are. But the, the problem is, is that um, whether it's a predilection, and I'm not sure, uh, for healthcare when they consume these ideas from other sectors or just how these ideas have been conveyed from other sectors into healthcare, um, the conveyance has been not dynamic but much more static, like take this one time and things will be fixed and better going forward. All right, thank you. Tell me about, I'm going to uh, sort of scroll through some of your slides, Steve, that you provided. Uh, to talk us through these um, kind of briefly, this value to market with speed, for example. You're looking at a bunch of different industries, and none, yeah. none of them is really healthcare. Thanks. Um, sure. So the, the, the thing about this slide is um, it gets to this point that if you um, apply this uh, self-correcting dynamic to everything you do, and, and the self-correcting dynamic basically is um, treating everything you do as, as an opportunity to uh, declare what actions you think will have what consequence, um, force yourself to reflect um, quickly in terms of what actions are actually taken, what consequences you actually get, and um, then explain the gap and then modify your next cycle of action. So that, that's the learning loops um, to which you referred early on. That if you take that very, very basic behavior into, into organizations, you can get profoundly great results. And not only profoundly great results, but you get profoundly great results over a very, very broad range of uh, situation. So without going into detail into all of these things, let me just offer, if you look down the first column, what's the purpose there? It's to say that we took this, uh, this very simple premise that um, exceptional performance reflects uh, the accumulation and application of much deeper understanding in terms of what to do and how to do it. And then if you teach people um, some very basics about how to uh, acquire high-speed learning and accumulate knowledge quickly, they'll get much better results. So the, the, the purpose of the first column is to say that, um, you know, this has worked well for uh, high-tech manufacturing at Intel and also high-tech new technology ramp. Um, it's worked for high-tech product design, Pratt & Whitney, heavy industry at Alcoa, um, um, you know, administrative processes in the U.S. government. Uh, you know, again, healthcare is the medicine one, you know, profound examples out of University of Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh more generally, um, a unionized utility, and uh, then the, um, you know, high variety, low volume, um, non-repeatable volunteer environment of a women's shelter, um, it's worked across that broad range of situations. So no, no one can quote and say, oh, well, we're different um, because it's worked everywhere that, that could say that. Now, the purpose of the uh, second and, and third column is to show just the profound impact on um, organizational success that comes from in, instilling this dynamic uh, deeply and broadly. So, uh, it, and, and again, I, I won't go into each and every case, but as, as your um, listeners, uh, you know, scan that list, you know, things um, in, in, the, in the first column, the before section, it's all descriptive of organizations being in a very precarious situation where they're no better than the norm, and in fact, they might be worse than the norm, and because of that, um, they're either at a commercial competitive disadvantage or um, risking um, the loss of their license to be stewards of the resources at their disposal. 
and you start looking at these changes from um, that, that middle column to the right-hand column, and um, it, it's just extraordinary. You know, so that Intel plant taking what was typically 64 days to get product through the plant down to 20 days, and, you know, skipping out of healthcare um, in terms of speed. So an emergency department um, taking what was, you know, one, two, three hours to get care in the emergency department down to um, 18 minutes. So anyway, that, that's the purpose of that slide. This stuff, the very simple principles work across a broad range of application, and when they work, they work with um, just hugely significant uh, changes between the before and the after. All right, so let me ask you one more question, and um, people will have their opportunity also to ask questions during the chat section Q&A. Talk about this learning. What is learning speed, and what does all this mean? Seesaw spread, seesaw spread, seesaw spread. I said that actually pretty well. And by the way, I apologize. There was medicine on that previous chart. I said there was nothing in healthcare. But what right. do we what do we mean by learning speed? Yeah, so it gets back to this. So you start to get, so you know on the previous slide, you don't have to flip back to it. But um, let's take a take an example, a healthcare example. Um, you know. Patients show up at the UPMC emergency department, and, and from the time they sign in to the time a doctor um, has written orders and they can continue with their care, it's over an hour. And you ask the question, why is it over an hour? Um, you know, you wouldn't want to wait that long if you, you would want care instantly. And the answer is it has to be that um, the reason it takes over an hour is because they don't know how to make it less than an hour. And when you start taking a look at the uh, the transition in that department from over an hour to under an hour to a sustainable 18 minutes from when you sign in to um, a physician writing orders, you say, well, what's the difference between 18 minutes and an hour? And the answer is that at 18 minutes, they knew a whole lot better how to put to good use um, the people and the other resources in the department than they did when they were at an hour. So the difference between, um, you know, perfect and great and great and good and good and, you know, not nearly good enough um, has to be knowledge. And, and if, if the difference in performance is um, knowledge, then the secret has to be learning speed, and the faster, better we learn, the more knowledge we accumulate and the, and, and the better we perform, and uh, the better we perform faster. Okay. So I'm just going to put up one more, and we'll come back to some of these just because um, we, you know, I mean, hey, you know, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. So throw out that one last slide there. So we have uh, Professor Belichick here, who is seeing, oh, sure. seeing solving, spreading, and leading. Yeah, so, um, you know, particularly folks on, on the West Coast and the, the Pacific Northwest um, are probably still crying over the results of the Super Bowl. And, and after the Super Bowl, there was certainly a lot of uh, question about um, how did the Seahawks lose? And, but less, less frequently asked was how did the um, Patriots win? So if we could just uh, click up to the slide that it immediately precedes this one, just to set the stage for folks. Um, no, in the other direction, the, the preceding slide. Yeah. Right, so it, it, this, is, this is where the game was with 26 seconds uh, left to play. Um, the Seahawks had the ball. You can see the ball being snapped right in the middle of the picture. Um, there's an intended receiver, and he's you know, bracketed in this uh, red rectangle. And then there's a defender. And, you, you, know, you go to the, the, the question, um, uh, you start with the situation. The receiver clearly had at least, if not better, understanding of where the ball was intended to be than, than the defender. And yet, um, if we go down to the, the next slide, Right. What we what we discovered is that the defender got to the the place where the ball was going to be um, better, faster than the intended receiver. And so you start going through kind of the rhetorical questions of, well, how did he get there um, uh, quicker and, and and intercept the ball? Well, a couple of things you can take off the table are um, that he was a better athlete because at this level in the NFL, we're talking you know hundreds of thousands of a second um, in terms of how quickly these guys can cover 20 yards. That so probably wasn't that. And, you know, I know the, um, you know, those who hate the Patriots say, well, you know, it was, uh, you know, deflated balls and stolen signals and it was cheating, but there seems to be no evidence of that. Um, but what there does seem to be is, is enormous evidence, and we can click down to the, um, the next slide, is that um, in, in that moment with 26 seconds left on the clock and this rookie having to act, um, he wasn't reacting, he wasn't reading the situation, it wasn't improvisation, that he actually had learned his way to the right answer over the preceding two weeks. And so, um, you know, synthesizing across a set of articles written about Bill Belichick, so, you know, they said, you know, look, Bill Belichick, like every other um, head coach in the NFL, spends a whole lot of time looking at videotape to um, see what kind of problems he and his team will encounter when they face the next opponent. So n nothing particularly unusual about that. And like every other um, head coach and coaching staff in the NFL, um, they will develop all sorts of um, 
uh, strategies, different plays in this situation and that situation to um, uh, try and come up with uh, a reasonable means of countering the problem they might face. So again, not different in terms of the seeing problems and the solving problems. Where, where there seemed to be a, 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 a phenomenal difference was um, the constant experimental testing of ideas so that they keep getting, so that they get honed um, faster and faster and faster to the point that they're effective. And so there was an article in um, the Wall Street Journal which compared Bill Belichick to uh, um, Alex Trebek on Jeopardy. And the reason they did that, they said that, you know, mo most teams, being a player on most teams is exhausting because of the physical punishment on the training field and in the weight room. And also the um, mental emotional exertion that occurs in the video room when you're um, going back and forth with your coaches. They said, but uh, on the Patriots, it doesn't let up because it doesn't matter where you are. You can be, you know, going into the, uh, into the restroom. You can be going to get a cup of coffee, whatever it happens to be. Bill Belichick will be put, putting pop quizzes at you, um, asking you in such and such a situation, um, what has our upcoming opponent done in the past? What do we expect them to do? What is your reaction? Da da da. And if um, he doesn't like your answer, he'll ask the, the guy standing next to you what his answer is and what's wrong with your answer. And, and, and so in this one article, the Patriots players commented, you know, we never, ever get to relax. It simply doesn't matter what we're doing. It be middle of the night, and Bill Belichick might ring the phone and ask us, you know, what, what do you need to do and, and, and how will it work? All so right. that, that was one piece. And then, then there was a second piece. And, and Okay. All right. I'm going to, you know what yeah. I'm going to do, Steve? No, this is great. <laughs> it's more right. involved than I even realized. Can you hold, right, your, right, right. You hold your thought? And, uh, cause you I, got it. Uh, yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate it. All right, listen, we weren't trying to rub anything in anyone's faces with regard to the Patriots. There's some very interesting analogies, and uh, I, I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on Roger to make all those, uh, that crosswalk there between uh, what Steve, uh, thank you, Steve, was talking about here, front lines, Bill Belichick, what what could be your image here uh, of kind of an agility uh, and a rigor here? But Roger, tell us what's been going on at Mayo, uh, and maybe how any of this all relates. But you're you're really kind of introducing us to some cool stuff, frontline dyad models. So go ahead, Roger. Thanks, and thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Well, the the bottom line is, how do you make it work in a reasonable, uh, understandable way? And I came to really appreciate a term that uh, Steve shared with me, uh, and that was islands of stability. How you create islands of stability uh, where the front line really doesn't have control over many things that happen to them during the course of the day. If you ask someone, what was your day like today? They might say, well, it was a good day. Then if you ask them, do you ever have a bad day? And what causes a bad day? There's always an affirmative answer. The question is, why do our frontline staff have bad days? And when we actually examine by having conversations with frontline people, we actually surface why they have these kind of bad days. And creating a movement from having bad days to creating islands of stability basically means we uncover defects. And these defects, when uh, examined and uh, reviewed in the appropriate way, allow an organization to become much more efficient uh, and much safer, and also uh, the front line having a, a better experience at work than they normally have. We all understand that as we go through the day, what we have to do oftentimes is survive. And by surviving the day, we just put up with these islands of instability these defects in the system. So what we did, by we I mean Steve Spear, Kathy Luther and I, uh, uh, Neil Romanoff and the team at Cedars-Sinai, and then later uh, some work with Andy Micah and folks at Mayo Clinic, we said how would we operationalize what Steve talks about? How can we create these islands of stability and what we've tested over the last couple of years is something that 
call the dyad model, but that really means nothing. It just means we would like to have a system by which we surface defects and then have the front line actually solve those defects. And when we have the front line solve the defects, at least in the male and the Cedar sinai uh, uh, testing grounds, we did it with two people rather than a large team. The difference between having two people work on a project and then having a large team work on a project appears to be the difference between uh, what is a top-down project and what is a uh, small defect identified by the front line that made their day worse uh, than it needed to be and that they had the understanding to actually fix that problem. What you see in front of you is just a, a schematic that uh, could be one of many schematics, but it's one that we've uh, tested over time and have found to have some utility. The top of this uh, a schematic gives a timeline, and for creating those islands of stability, we like to have no more than 30 days uh, that two people might work on a given uh, defect within their system. Frankly, most of the time, these defects are fixed within several days and not 30 days. Uh, the schematic has some feedback mechanisms in it. For example, we surface defects by having a frontline conversation. We ask simple questions, which are called anchoring questions, where someone says, well, what makes for a bad day, and why don't you describe your last bad day for me? Interestingly enough, when we get a multidisciplinary team having a conversation, within one hour we usually surface somewhere between 15 and 20 defects uh, that are uh, causing the front line to have a bad day. We then have leadership of some kind uh, align this work and scope this work to make sure that it's reasonable that two people could work on it. We validate by measurement to say how often does this defect actually occur? Is it a one-time or is it a multi-occurring uh, event? We have them describe the specific work they're going to do. What are the boundaries for that work? And what are the simple measures you're going to use to determine whether this work actually uh, has succeeded in improving uh, your day uh, from the perspective of the front line? We have a design strategy where we actually design a process. We do small tests of change, and then we finish the project. This is what we teach, and this has been highly successful. The article that's uh, referenced uh, on the uh, lower end of the slide there describes all of these steps in detail and uh, uh, should explain most questions that you actually have. So for me, Madge, it's the uh, idea that Steve had in terms of the Super Bowl, how do you actually take this down to the front line and actually have the front line implemented in a way that is understandable for them? And that's what we did at Cedar sinai with Steve's help. Madge? All right. Well, thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to hear from Alexia in just a second, uh, which will give us also a couple of examples. But, Roger, just maybe in uh, one minute, what kinds of things, just some a few examples of things maybe that have surfaced at Mayo or wherever else you want to mention, uh, the kinds of things that are sort of tailor-made for this model? Uh, Cedar sinai had a great example, and it had to do with uh, the ward clerks being constantly bothered for telephone numbers. And you can imagine the ward clerks are putting orders in and doing all sorts of things, and they're being constantly bothered. Well, people didn't really realize how much the, the ward clerks were being bothered. So what they did is they made a list of frequent telephone numbers that were available right where the ward clerk did their work, and the number of interruptions dropped by some 70 to 80% within several days. Now, this might seem like a very logical, simple, why did they even have to have a project for this? But these are the kind of simple defects that when added up 
are causing us to take hours to do something that should take just 15 minutes or days to do something that should take hours. All of these things add up. This was fixed within just several days. Okay, great example. Okay, thank you so much, Roger. All right, so uh, the final person we want to hear from before we go to discussion and start thinking of your questions is Alexia here. And Alexia is right there where the rubber meets the road. I can't think of anything better than than uh, talking of what than getting everything we're talking about today into the hands of students and future health professionals, except maybe getting the material into the hands of students who are already health leaders and professionals. So, Alexia, in this doctorate program, you're really uh, I don't want to get too carried away here by talking about running with the ball, but you are definitely running with the ball with this uh, uh, the approaches we're talking about today. So welcome and, and tell us what's going on at Texas Tech. Thanks. Sure, Madge. Thank you very much. Um, I had the privilege of attending the uh, 2012 IHI meeting in Orlando um, where I heard uh, Dr. Reisner and the IHI team and the folks from Cedars-Sinai actually present this model. And uh, I was immediately struck by the applicability and how I could transfer the model into an, a learning assignment in our doctoral program. So I brought it back and applied it, I guess, the first, well, I attended in December in the spring semester of 13. Uh, I incorporated it as an assignment in the course. Uh, and I think if you look at the next slide, what you'll see is that um, these are the objectives for uh, the leadership component of this. Uh, for these particular students uh, as we look at the work, and these are sort of the big picture objectives of what they're going to be doing. We really see that this is helping them identify new leadership skills for value-based system. And, and Steve, here's a shout out to, to you. We also review your work around high-velocity edge leadership and have them discuss that and the importance of leaders really engaging and leading. Um, and then we talk about re-envisioning how improvements can be made within their organization uh, and how they can empower their team actually to develop their leadership skills. So um, incorporating it into an assignment uh, was a very important part of this. And I think uh, from this being uh, a rapid cycle improvement initiative from my perspective, that also fit very well within the schematic of a semester because oftentimes it's hard for students to accomplish something within a semester assignment. And this fit very well. So what we did is we focused on key leadership uh, skills within their team. So uh, how would they identify a key problem that's seeing the problem and then testing and implementing a solution, solving a problem, and then reporting on the findings within their organizations to others and also within their educational cohort and sharing what they learned. And this has been a wonderful piece. I just came from class this morning with these same students who did the project this semester and there was wonderful sharing about what they learned and how it can be improved. And then they also developed their skills and competence in direct reports by leading. Uh, one of the things I also want to note that uh, in this assignment, we take the model that was presented to you uh, earlier by Dr. Reisner and we do a, a webinar uh, and present that along with some of the high velocity edge leadership skills. Um, <clears throat> and then we also teach improvement sciences in this particular course as well. So we incorporate the model and then the objectives. So we ask those students to also develop a charter or an aim statement for their project to demonstrate at least one PDSA and then to practice their analytic skills by developing a run chart and then obviously discussing improvement science as a framework for all of this work. So, Alexia, I'm only going to butt in for two seconds just to say this fat link that just appeared in the chat. Uh, Alexia, and a shout out to all her students who generously, many of them, uh, shared their presentations and the work that they've been doing. Uh, we'll put up that next slide, John, which uh, gives you an idea of some of the projects people have been working on. But at this fat link here, uh, and where you'll also find it on IHI.org tomorrow, uh, these are some of the things that uh, doctoral students, uh, all of them leaders already in healthcare, uh, set their minds to. And it's uh, fascinating to look at, at the work itself. Thanks. Sorry, Alexia, go ahead. Sure, thank you. Um, I wanted to give you some examples of how the model's been applied uh, with our doctoral students. 
And that was the thing that most fascinates me about the model uh, and using it as a learning experience in our educational uh, program is that really it can be applied in any setting. Um, as a matter of fact, I just had a student this semester who uh, is uh, having a baby and she was at home a lot, she wasn't working. So she actually applied the model in her home uh, in doing some improvements there. So it really works just about in any setting, which is I think is phenomenal from an educational standpoint. But as you can see from this particular slide, you'll see that um, we've had students uh, actually this semester apply um, this model in a global enterprise program of a large national cancer center. Now, this was interesting as well because uh, this organization is really a matrix organization for this, uh, this particular student, the group he works with. And he noted, um, his name is Jeremy, and he noted that uh, <clears throat> People on the same level of the organizational chart were working together to do improvements. And one, um, by using the model, one day they may be leading an improvement, but the next day they could also be part of an improvement team. So that sort of equalized the playing field within their team and really created a camaraderie. Uh, as they move forward. Um, he felt the challenge was trying to keep the focus on projects uh, within their control. Uh, it's often easy to think of a larger uh, projects that you could fix in your system when you're applying the model, but if you can make sure you keep it focused uh, on what you can actually accomplish is a very important piece of uh, achieving the outcomes that you want within the model. Uh, then you can see there's other examples here uh, that we have listed uh, in acute care hospital focused on alarm fatigue fatigue, uh, ambulatory care setting of a large national cancer center, um, and then, um, then uh, in, the, in a regional health center. But I think one of the most interesting things, Madge, if I can just go one more slide here. Um, uh, we've seen the model picked up and carried forward post-graduation. Uh, and really, uh, people get real buy-in. The students really enjoy the assignment. They see the value uh, of applying it, and they take it, and then they're implementing it in, in their healthcare systems. Uh, one stu student, Dr. David Marshall, who's a CNO and a VP, adopted the model within a system, uh, developed some policies around it, and really started to engage the frontline team in system-wide improvements. And I think we've shared those uh, with you on the website today. Uh, another student who's actually currently in the program is taking the model and further developing it for system-wide applications. So uh, is it, uh, Dr. Reisner and team at IHI and Cedars-Sinai folks who developed it, uh, it's, a, it's a great model, um, ties together a lot of pieces, is, works really well for a learning assignment uh, in any level uh, of student, I think. All right. So whether uh, think whether you're a strict educational institution or a learning organization, which we hope most of you are, uh, this is a, a great uh, example. And I want to give a special shout out to again all the students. Also, Cindy Dunlap was one of um, who was uh, also early in sharing her use of daily metrics and huddles. Uh, at an organization and how that has really, really helped uh, in using the frontline dyad process. Okay. Well, we uh, can I just say that in yeah. a shout out, Cindy's Cindy's actually on the phone as well as uh, Jeremy Viles who applied the model. So if anyone has questions, they're there on the line to help help out. Okay, that's great. Well, uh, you know, Cindy, you can make yourself known or uh, Jeremy by uh, chat. That's how we'll know we're, you're there. Thank you, Alexia. All right, we went over the half hour mark just a little bit. Thank you all for being patient. I'm so curious about your questions. Um, it's true we're kind of throwing some stuff at you, although I guess that's kind of uh, what we do here at WHI. We're going to give you some stuff to run with. Uh, John, just remind people very quickly uh, about chatting. Yeah, just make sure that all your chats and comments and questions are directed to all participants down in the Centu bar in the chat. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Well, um, somebody is asking about studies in health plans, and I'm not sure what the in means. If you were talking about whether health plans are doing any of this kind of stuff or uh, whether uh, there are studies of health plans. So if that is A.M. Holmes, maybe you could clarify that. What about examples in primary care? And I will just sort of throw that out uh, to anyone here, whether that's uh, Roger or uh, Steve. And again, we 
talked about the frontline diet, this sort of two people being able to really tee up some um, scoping, I mean, a, a defect scoping and, and some actual problem solving, but we've got some other tools uh, as well here. So primary care, uh, anyone uh, have any thoughts about that? Roger? Yes. Uh, we did a fair amount of work uh, with the primary care community-based uh, uh, medicine care at Mayo Clinic and uh, found that the model that I uh, shared with you works very well. It, 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 it is all about having a conversation, whether you're a, a health plan, primary care, hospital-based, it doesn't make any difference. Everyone has workarounds that they go through every day in order to get through their day. What you need to do as an improvement uh, person is find out what are those workarounds that people are doing uh, on a daily basis, and those workarounds are the defects that the front line do not recognize as possible safety problems. They do not recognize how inefficient the system becomes when all of these are, are inserted into their daily work. So the bottom line is, Yes, we've done this in primary care. There are a lot of examples that we could give about how primary care actually improved uh, and created islands of stability as a result of uh, this uh, defect analysis. One that I can recall was just how blood pressures were taken. Uh, in one setting, they used an electronic system to take blood pressures, and when the front line was asked what made for a bad day, they said when a lot of large patients came in in an afternoon, and it was because the electronic system didn't work very well, and they had to find the old manual system uh, blood pressure cuffs, which weren't always available. Well, making a simple nomogram on which people would not fit into the electronic blood pressure cuff mechanism was a simple uh, fix for a defect that uh, made for a bad day and made for inefficiency within the system. So there are many, many more examples we could give you, but those are the simple examples that many of us in leadership would just overlook. But from the frontline position, it's a very important uh, workaround. Okay, thanks, Roger. And thanks, Steve Spear, for uh, chatting in some uh, comments uh, and thoughts in response to uh, several things uh, that people are raising in the chat. Uh, interesting comments about people realizing somebody said that maybe we don't always need everyone to improve processes. Are you using the dyad model when the problem crosses organizational units? Uh, and uh, maybe that's back to you, Roger, and uh, anyone else, yeah. uh, feel free to weigh in, okay? Our experience is that the uh, improvement work needs to be very narrow. When it goes across units, it's difficult for two people to do it. So the work that I've been engaged in is trying to figure out how we can scope a project to uh, such a level that two people can work on it. Uh, I'm not saying you couldn't go across units with this, but this might be one of your larger improvement plans and not necessarily a frontline uh, two-person project. Okay, thank you. All right, Steve. Yeah, Madge, if I, if I could add just a Jump right in. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, so um, I started my comments by saying um, we can actually learn, organizations can learn a lot from people. Um, and, you know, the, the point I made is around this dynamic self-correction that healthy organisms do is actually a very good model for um, the dynamic self-correction that organizations should do. There's another element to this is that the, the dynamic self-correction going on inside the human body occurs um, within nests, right? So, you, you know, there's a stress on the body and, and cells and even within cells, um, try to deal with those stresses, and they deal with them as well as they can until they can't, and then the, um, the problem gets escalated to tissue, and then um, the tissue deals with the stress until it can't, then it gets escalated to organ and then system, and, and a lot of this is happening um, automatically or autonomically, and, and it's only a very few problems that you get escalated to the level of conscious thought, but the, the, the key point is this idea of um, nesting to the point that the problem can't be controlled and contained, and then escalation. So as far as this question around organizations, well, you know, ideally we set up our organizations in exactly the same way, which is we um, create structures um, 
that allow uh, efficiency and efficacy around problem solving. And, um, and we, we don't just do it arbitrarily by, um, we don't do it arbitrarily for other reasons, but we, we start with the um, recognition that organizations are complex, they're dynamic, and they have to be able to uh, digest problems quickly. And so what we wanna do is um, set up people so that problems are seen and solved um, as soon as possible by the fewest people as possible so that things that do get escalated really are the ones that are more severe and more boundary spanning. Okay, thanks. What about, um, I appreciate it, and I'll come back you, with, to you with a couple of other questions. There's one, though, that's popping around. What about training? Andrea, can I start with you on that one? Um, training needed for frontline staff uh, to kind of start down uh, this pathway. Well, really one of the magical things I think about uh, these approaches, uh, the way Steve has used it and the way Roger has used it, is that you don't have to train frontline staff at all, really. All you need is a, a leader in the unit, a manager or someone else who knows how to get the conversation started and get the scoping done and, and make sure that the staff are included and then is there to help the dyad as they're looking for solutions. But um, the reason we started this project was because we knew that quality departments were too expensive and weren't getting to the front line enough. And so we looked for something that was already there, some abundance, and the abundance seemed to be very good managers and, uh, and staff that didn't really need a course in order to figure out how to solve their problems on a daily basis. Arlie Christensen just asked a question about how this lines up with high reliability tools. And the folks that I've seen that have used uh, this approach in, in a few hospitals have used those tools as, as uh, part of this process because the intent of those reliability tools and the dyad approach um, are essentially the same. Okay, thank you. Uh, anyone, th thanks, Andrea. There was a question, somebody asking whether health plans uh, are working in this domain at all on this kind of um, sort of defect solving. Um, I'm not sure, Steve, is that something you're aware of at all? Around health plans? So I, yeah, I health plans, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, Pilgrim or Tufts or, you know, I'm sorry, being rather parochial here, but any health plans that are interested in this area at all? Yeah, I, I can't speak directly to that, but certainly they should be because, again, you know, you think about what a health plan is concerned about. It's um, uh, the, the well-being of its patients and the, um, the, the financial well-being of its uh, uh, financial stakeholders. And what we're talking about is uh, – a set of um, behaviors that allow providers to um, offer much better care to many more people at far lower cost. Okay. All right. So, um, okay. Well, you know, and, and just just, yeah. just to add, you know, people ask about the health plans worry about it, but it also says the, the boards worry about this. I mean, it is really, you know, if you can make the argument that this really should be a governance concern too, that uh, the, those who um, like boards. Um, represent the interests of a broad set of stakeholders should really be concerned whether or not senior leaders are cultivating these behaviors and putting them to good effect or not. Okay, thank you very much. Alexia, let me come back to you quickly. Somebody was wondering about, I, I'm the one who started saying something about uh, Cindy's huddle, and um, I'm afraid we um, are probably not going to be able to open Cindy's phone line, and um, so she's welcome to chat in. Somebody was wondering about uh, the use of daily metrics and huddles, so Cindy's welcome to chat in some thoughts. If you want to say something very generally about that, Alexia, please go ahead. Well, I think, too, um, we've been speaking of this model as a dyad, and I think that's sort of a miss. I would take the dyad out of the model. Uh, certainly, if you can, the minimum you need is a dyad, but uh, the way we've been applying at Texas Tech is in teams, uh, frontline teams. And, you know, the team could be two people. The team could be three people. Uh, probably not more than five, but it, but it can be in a team. Uh, the, the beauty in the model is the process works if you follow it. Um, and so the huddle idea goes along with more of this is about a team. It doesn't necessarily just have to be a diet. Okay. And um, I think that's an important point to understand. All right. Thank you very much. Are all workarounds considered a defect uh, or contingency 
calling a new play? There, I, I, some of these questions are quite are are good and deep. Um, what do you think, Roger? What do you think? I I would suspect that most workarounds uh, are based on some sort of defect uh, that makes that person inefficient in doing the process that they should have been doing. So the workaround suggests that there's some sort of inefficiency built into that process. By and large, I can't say that everyone is, but it would strike me that most of them would be. But I would, this is Alexia, I would add that uh, if the workaround is innovative enough that it may become an innovation uh, that needs to be examined for, you know, impl implementation permanently. Right. It yeah. might be something worth studying, is in other words, you're saying. If somebody has come up with something that they just decided was a workaround, it actually might have been the solution. Right. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the workaround is bad. It just means that the underlying process is inefficient, and so therefore you've got workarounds. It's a signal. Okay. So one of the yeah, Mitch, if I if I could just add, go ahead again, connect this back to good connecting this back to good clinical behavior. Someone walks in, they have a symptom. We we, we um, offer a treatment. The, the 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 question is, is it a good treatment or a bad treatment? Well, good clinical behavior is that the the treatment is um, uh, applied to a diagnosed cause, and it's um, and there's follow up. And if it doesn't work, we try another cycle of um, assess, diagnose, and treat. And if it does work, then that becomes part of the treatment plan. On the other hand, um, you know, we have quackery, which is uh, someone has a symptom, we just do something without any of the disciplines we, we just had. So anyway, taking a step for, back from the bedside, um, if we have a problem, to, Ro to Roger's point, that is a sign of a problem. If we have to work around a situation, it means something is not working. The question is, what do we do with that adaptation? Um, is that adaptation then something which we um, apply the same discipline of we make the adaptation with a set of expectations and follow up, and if it works, we incorporate it into the new standard, or is it just an adaptation which is a willy-nilly quackery? Mm -hmm. Okay, very good point. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve, and a lot of very thoughtful comments on the chat. Uh, Jennifer and others, I really appreciate that. Andrea, I'm curious from, uh, since you've been uh, engaged in this now, along with some others here for several years, are there some hot spotter issues uh, or types of generic issues that uh, kind of keep recurring or are tailor-made for frontline uh, improvement? Uh, small teams, the dyads, uh, the daily huddles, et cetera. Well, I, you know, I think if you get a group of people that think about defects in their organizations together over and over, you'll find the things that just make no sense but happen the way they did and nobody argues with them. And the kinds of things that we've heard from lots of people we were talking to have to do with just daily annoyances, distractions, can't find supplies, um, can't... Uh, can't get patients where they're supposed to be on time. Um, they're just uh, nut and bolt transportation issues that people pay attention to for that patient and don't see a pattern and don't see a reason to do anything but just keep moving. Um, mm -hmm. And I think probably everybody in the on this call, all I don't know, 450, 470 people now could could name the things that come up over and over and over again. Well, if, uh, uh, maybe let's take that as a, uh, <laughs> you're all welcome. Um, if you'd like to just start, you know, ticking off the things that are coming up that might give you everyone some ideas, could be our first dyad conversation here, uh, the dyad of, of, of the various amoebas here. I'm sorry, who's, who's trying to say something? Is that Alexia? Oh, okay. Let me ask a, a question. Are there some cautions or cautionary tales here at all? Uh, ways to go about this the wrong way, or issues that are not the the right ones to be uh, trying trying to solve in this particular way. Uh, anyone, Roger? Yeah, one of the cautions is that uh, with the model that that we've been working with, uh, there is leadership involvement. They scope the projects. Uh, they make sure that. Uh, it's a project that can be done by the front line, whether it's a diet of two or more, uh, and they understand what resources uh, might be necessary. If we let the front line go without any direction at all, uh, there could be uh, 
issues that would develop that would not be as uh, uh, positive as one might want. Therefore, I think there is some leadership involvement. And if you look at the model, it shares with you what that leadership involvement would be. Our experience has been that after a few months, a given unit that has had experience with this model understands what their level of ability is and what types of projects they can handle. And there is less uh, uh, leadership uh, oversight that is then necessary. But when you start this out, I think you need the leadership oversight. Okay, Roger, somebody's asking, does leadership equal frontline managers or top leadership? Frontline. Frontline, okay. We just had a and great, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Alexia, is that you? Go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to comment. And Madge, All right. if I could just say, you know, a real quick addition to this. Yeah, um, it, it, this has to be about leadership because fundamentally we're talking about changing the, the, um, the behavior and the norms which inform the behaviors of an organization. And so um, if the senior leaders don't actually uh, engage and do this, everyone also uh, recognize that this is just um, uh, mealy mouth talk and that their values are elsewhere. Okay, thanks, Steve. Lexia, go ahead. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, yes, just one point on um, the engagement piece. One of the, or the errors where people go wrong in applying the model, what I've seen with the doctoral students is they'll go in with their idea of what needs to be improved versus really um, surfacing defects uh, as the model suggests they do with their frontline team. And that really changes the dynamic of the process, I believe, because uh, they don't have as great success as if the uh, defect they're working on is actually surfaced by the front line. Uh, so that's one of the major pieces I see students making errors uh, in applying the model. Okay. It's going in with their 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 uh, direction. They want to go in with it versus letting the front line staff do it. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, thank you, Tammy, for your comments and teeing up some of the things from, from your experience uh, that are ripe for improvement. I want to just mention, though, uh, that uh, we, we had a really interesting program in March on middle managers who can be very much a part of operationalizing uh, this problem solving and um, folks might want to take a look at that. These things are very um, much connected. All right, I'm going to go around the horn quickly for final remarks. Uh, I'll start with you, Andrea, uh, just some parting words. What what next with this work? What, what might you do with it if you've been listening today? Thanks. Well, I'm really hoping that people will learn just a little bit more and figure out where they can try it out. It's like one of these magic things where once you try it, you're just stunned with the number of defects you can surface and how quickly things change and how empowered the staff feel. Okay. Thanks, so I Sam. hope we hear about that. All right. Sounds good. Steve, final thoughts. Keep it simple. <laughs> Keep it simple. It's, it's about seeing and solving problems and then uh, temporarily incorporating what you've learned. Okay. Keep doing that every day till you run out of problems and you're in a much better place. All right. Thank you very much, Steve. Roger? Uh, I would say have a conversation with the front line. Just ask them one simple question. What was the last bad day you had and describe what it was and see what you can find. Okay. Thank you very much, Roger. And Alexia, uh, in the in the middle of teaching this stuff, uh, so uh, we're, we're thrilled. Uh, Real-time uh, learning and engaging going on. Well, I think the most important thing is to expose people to the model. Uh, it's not published yet that I'm aware of, and I'm hoping some of those, uh, Roger and other team members on the phone who've actually developed it would publish it. But getting the word out about how it works and then exposing people to it within your organization, and certainly educators uh, taking the model and developing um, uh, specific learning objectives around it and using it as an assignment is great, great. All right, thank you so much. I want to thank our wonderful panel today. They've brought together uh, some very, very important stuff. As always, things are kind of complicated, but we do a pretty good job here, we hope, at synthesizing. I want to thank Alexia and her students, uh, doctoral students, healthcare leaders, uh, for sharing the work that they're doing, and they are at that link. Uh, you'll find that on the uh, WIHI archive page. And also, uh, we Val Weber and our team here at IHI did did some masterful editing to get this frontline diet 
approach report uh, now available on IHI.org, and that will help explain quite a bit. Next up on WIHI on May 7th, we're going to be talking about Oregon's Coordinated Care Organizations. We're calling that Leaning In with the CCOs. I hope you'll join us. A reminder today that you can download the chat and any slides we used. You can do that when you log off. You can also find all of that on the website tomorrow, and we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that pops up. We want to know what worked for you and how we can continue to make WIHI better. Check out the archive pages. If anything is confusing at all, you can email info at IHI.org. They've got all the answers. So people are amazing. You people who joined us today, our guests today, and then there are this, this amazing team that helps make WIHI possible every other week. John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for joining.